This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! Alright, alright, party people in the place to be. Welcome back to Nerds from the Underground. I'm Johnny, and joining me this very special night is... Hey everybody, it's Nala. Really happy to be back for another banging episode. Right, right. And we have two very Soviet books for y'all tonight. Uh, why don't you tell the people what we got for them tonight, Nalo? Hey everybody, we got some uh, snow-filled covered books. We're reading Sara by Garth Ennis and uh, Road to Bones. Right, right. And before we go into the books, though, we're going to do our little check-in for the week. And Nalo, what have you read this week that you think is just outstanding that you'd like to shout out? Well, first I'd like to shout out, I finally got to go to the comic store after a long hiatus uh, due to current situations. And I've been really hyped about uh, Joe Hill's contributions to DC Comics, so I was really psyched to pick up the conclusion to Basketful of Heads. It's been a really fun 70s kind of summer vacation slasher vibe book, and I was really happy to find that. And I've also been continuously surprised by Aftershock Comics. I just picked up Dead Day, and it kind of blew me away. I was frustrated that I couldn't get issue two right away. And I'm really looking forward to seeing some books like Undone by Blood pick back up from Aftershock, so... Glad to see that the indies and some quality horror DC is back on the shelves. Hell yeah. And for me personally, yesterday I got a very special treat in the mail. I got both issues of Ghost Thunder Presents, which is an anthology book written by B.B. Aubrey, who is a really big contributor to the show we've covered resonant we're all huge fans of his here and this is just a really cool indie thing that he does and oh they're just so much fun if you get a chance go to their website ghostunderpresents.com and pick these up they're they're just mad fun yeah i saw you post about those i'm planning to pick them up right after we're done recording i love some hell, bb hell yeah brother all right like the man said first up we have road of bones written by rich dubik with Art, colors, and cover by Alex Cormack, my personal homie, and letters by Justin Birch. Horror, history, and Russian folklore collide in a brutal survival tale where the worst prison in the world is merely the gateway to even darker terrors. In 1953, a Serbian gulag of Kolmaya is hell on earth, which is why Roman Morozov leaps at the chance to escape it. But even if they make it out, Roman and his fellow escapees still have hundreds of miles of frozen tundra between them and freedom with the help of a mysterious being straight out of a childhood fairy tale roman just might make it or is the being simply a manifestation of the brutal circumstances driving him insane yeah so this is just like a punch to the gut kind of prison breakout but in the siberian tundra right around a time of like solid ruling and we really kind of see the consequences of how you can end up in a prison like this and what people are willing to do to really get out as well as the kind of psychological trauma that might follow them through. And it's really unclear, you know, what's real and what's not in terms of, you know, the kind of troubles that our protagonists get in as they escape this prison. Uh, what did you think, Johnny? Right. I mean, like you said, the weird things that could land you in this gulag. Our main character, Roman, he is there for simply telling a joke about Stalin at a dinner party. And he's written up for slander against the leader. So this guy is basically just the world's minorest troll who ends up in this frozen hell getting beat, digging holes all day, 
and barely any food to keep his stomach full. So he's already unhinged. Then he believes that there's this creature that has followed him since he was a child that he gives some of his food to. And so this is a very, very sad guy we're dealing with. But then his friend introduces him to this gangster that's in jail with him, and he gives him this perfect plan to get out. And, oh man, what happens next? Oh, you know what I'm talking about, Nalo. What happens next? Yeah, what happens next is pretty gnarly. But before we get in there, just to kind of double back on who he thinks he has this kind of special friend watching over him in the prison. And so this book has a lot of uh, subtle undertones of Russian folklore and references to the kind of occult of the old, you know, olden times, maybe 1800s. And so he believes he has a domovic. Doma in Russian means house. I'm not sure what Vik means, but essentially a Domovic in Russian folklore is like a household spirit that, you know, watches over you. You can think of it as a Casper the Friendly Ghost. So this Roman protagonist, he kind of secretly steals food from the prison to leave out for his, you know, goosely goalie guardian which he kind of believes in and you know he immediately kind of gets caught doing that when we introduce to him and so that's something he thinks is going to protect him through his journey but as soon as their journey begins when they kind of break out of the prison we see you know it's going to be a brutal ride right the themes of this book are basically isolation starvation and mental health deterioration i mean it just it goes in that cycle too as soon as they break out you already don't trust the mobster guy and you really learn why in issue three but even to just get there usually like a story like this that kind of creeps and slow burns you'd find boring but just the way that the tension gets built in this book it just really helps pull you along with it and i i think it's short enough that it doesn't drag in any places do you nalo you think it drags it all no i would say uh, quite the opposite this is a super concise short read it's a nice four issues so you know you're getting bang for your buck if you're buying it in trade but it's something you can read in really one sitting doesn't drag at all and especially on a first time read the amount of kind of body horror-esque shocks that come about really you know bang your head against the wall that you almost miss on the second reading these kind of like subtle undertones of the folklore and the mythology so this is just kind of a punch to the face doesn't really leave you doesn't get slow at all so i agree with you and like you were saying the art when it finally does get brutal my boy alex cormick is just the master at drawing just this gnarly grotesque mutilations i mean ever since i saw him in sync and then in this he just He's got a knack for it. Nobody draws just grotesqueness as good as he does in comic books right now, in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And grotesque is like a really perfect word for this. And just to kind of set the setting for our listeners, like we said, this prison camp is in Siberia. The protagonist is there because he told a offensive joke about our, our comrade Stalin. And so once they escape, you know, there's nowhere really to go. The guards even actually decide to let them go. They say, why waste the bullet? Well, they'll eventually get caught and they'll be brought back. And if they're not, you know, us as our guards, we're going to have to do their job. So let's forget about them. And so, you know, they're just put in this setting where you actually see in some kind of uh, double spread pages that they're just mountain after mountain after mountain, snow topped, snow covered. They have no matches. They have no light. They have almost no food. And that's where you really start to discover that, you know, this is a story of not only psychological deterioration, but 
you know, the ethics of cannibalism. Right. And man, do we take a journey through that idealism and just how fast people can turn on one another. It, it was really neat when, when you finally get to the, the big twist, which, you know, anybody and everybody saw coming. It's not like it was like a hidden twist. But when you get to the point where it finally gets to the part where two guys try to turn on one and what ends up happening Oh, man, it's, it was just depicted so wonderfully in this book. I mean, I'm a fan of horror. I love it. I guess some people would be like, oh, my God, it's tragic. But I really, really just had a huge grin when it got to that point in that part. And I finally saw it. I was just like, "Ooh, man, look at Rich and Alex just gave me the money load, man. That is just beautiful right there. <laughs> and I, I would just say, like, for me, I would describe it as just visceral. You know, like, you almost just, like, you're in the moment when you read this. Like, you just feel like... You know, you're watching someone's arms getting torn off. You know, people turning on each other, wanting to eat each other. They're freezing cold. They've been walking for weeks, days. You know, so your sense of time is distorted. And our protagonist is, you know, either has some sort of ghoul helping him out or he's completely gone off the cliff mentally. And it's almost one of the same, you know, because you kind of got to be in this insane state to handle your compadres who might want to eat you. On top of that, he was getting hit in the head by the butt of guns on a daily basis back at the gulag that that can't really help if you're already kind of a little cuckoo i think right i think you even saying that is you know for our listeners warranting a third reading for myself because the first reading i was just like you know so freaked out by the gore the guts the the visceralness the second time i was really reading you know the undertones of the kind of references to russian folklore and i think you know this book is good enough that on a third reading you're going to start to you know understand like hey that guy's been getting hit hit in the head a lot in the first few panels. You know, maybe what he's talking about later on is uh, not quite right. Are these unreliable narrators? You know, what is this book really all about? And I like that you keep bringing up the Russian folklore because I've actually checked out some of that stuff in the past and oh my God, do they have some of the most terrifying folklore ever. I mean, they are they are really just into terrifying their children. I mean, if you've ever read any of their old fairy tales and, and folklore, I mean... Ooh, the Eastern Europeans knew how to get down. They knew how to terrify some children. <laughs> but I also really just liked how there is some, you know, groundness in sort of historical realism about like what goes on in these kind of Soviet labor camps and how the guards are pretty apathetic about, you know, finding them and the people above them don't really care and the people above them don't really care, but you know, Stalin cares that some prisoners escaped. So everyone down the line needs to prepare that they care. And I think at one scene when the guards are sent out to find them, he's, they're like, so we will pretend to look. <laughs> and it kind of gives you a sense of this like double standard of, you know, everyone's super loyal to the you know Soviet party, but everyone at the same time is super cynical about this state of affairs. And I think there's some overlap with our, our next book we'll discuss with people feeling that way. Yeah, they're super loyal to the ideal of the Soviet party, but like actually the the actions that they're asked to do, they kind of stop and be like, no, what? no that, 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 that can't be right. That's counterintuitive to what we're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, by far what anybody who studied history will know about the Stalin era. It was a terrible time. He killed more of his own people than Hitler did with the gypsies and, and the Hebrews and all the people he massacred. Stalin took out way more Russians and Ukrainians by himself than the entire war did so it it's pretty terrifying that you think that that guy was in power so long yeah but off of that i don't want to spoil the actual joke but you know why the guy's in prison is for this you know super benign joke where he's just like you know i wish i uh, didn't have my parents as mother russia and you know 
the his compadre is like, I forgot what it was like to laugh. We're about to die. We're in this cave. And it just shows how, you know, no one really buys the party line, but everyone has to go through the motions, even when they're in the prison camp. But we do get this kind of insight into, you know, the rebels of the gangsters, then the gangsters uh, rivals who were the ones who were gangsters, but turned on the gangsters, go back to the prison guards. And so you do get a ton of kind of insight into the political hierarchy of how these prison camps work and how they're so, you know, isolated. They're thousands and thousands and thousands of miles from Moscow and really like what they're up against in terms of escape. I think that their whole hopes are on finding some sort of hunter lodge. And when they do find one, it's ironic what they do come across. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, to the point of what you were talking about with the very benign joke, I mean, look at what goes on in China now. If you post a meme of Winnie the Pooh, you get you get ripped offline. I mean, Lord knows what happens to you with like what kind of camps they have for people who call President Xi Winnie the Pooh over there. I mean, like we we literally have the same type of thing going on in a country right now, which is almost terrifying. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And this book is just a glorious, terrifying view at something that really happened that probably really happened i mean i'm not saying that this story particularly like with the characters happened exactly but it's not a far-fetched idea to think that something to this equivalent happened maybe even on a monthly basis during this time period there and then that's really really the gut punch of the book well it absolutely happened and you know going back to the title road of bones you got to think like some percent of people had to have escaped these prisons and you know what kind of bones do they have to step over to actually do that and so i really like that this book is historically grounded has some you know psychological horror superstitious-esque elements but you know it's possible to chalk that up to mental instability and you really kind of get this tight package of you know what people actually might have done to get out of these kind of camps right right and i got extra lucky Rich actually gave me advanced copies of this to review for Twitter and for my YouTube. So I have a very big warm spot in my heart for this particular book. You got the last words you want to say before we move on to the next one, Nolo? I would just say this book, uh, you know, if it's not on your radar yet, make sure it is. I got a ton of praise when it came out, but it's, you know, you know, it's not an ongoing. So, you know, I might have missed it. And I would just say it's definitely worth the time. I read it, you know, three times already. It's really fun. It's really short, and it's a it's a punch to the face. Piggybacking off of what he said, it's also an IDW horror book. Now, IDW may be hit or miss with their commercial properties, but when they put out a horror book, you want to check it out. And yeah, Road of Bones, Mountainhead, they have so many very good horror books out right now. And yeah, you really don't want to miss out on this because it's it's just so creepy because it's real. That's just the beautiful thing about this one. Road of Bones and IDW definitely needs all our support, so definitely get this book if you're looking for something shocking to read. Hell yeah. And now on to the Pierre de Resistance. We have Sarah, written by the Irish madman himself, Mr. Garth Innes, with just beautiful, beautiful art by Mr. Stephen Epting. Colors by Elizabeth Brettweiser. Letters by Rob Steen, and edited by Sebastian Grenier. All right. Nazi-occupied Russia, 1942. Fight hard, shoot straight, don't let them take you alive. In the second terrible winter of the siege of Leningrad, seven women, snipers, find themselves caught up in the struggle against the German invader. Their deadliest shot is Sarah, 
whose inner demons may yet prove her undoing. But with the enemy to their front and the agents of the Soviet state lurking in the shadows, how long can any of this squad survive the terrifying maelstrom of war? Yeah, so this book is from TKO Studios. They've been putting out really concise, kind of contained books by some leading writers. And this is one that is a classic Garth Ennis war book, but starring all-female cast of elite snipers. And so that's a very unique setting for me. And this is another book, just like the last we discussed, that's set in the Russian landscape in winter, covered with snow. And I just kind of love the tactical nature of this book, of, you know, what it actually takes to be a sniper, and uh, also what it means to be a woman participating in the war efforts for Russia. They mention in the book that uh, women are doing everything these days except for the infantry. And it has all these kind of subtones of, you know, Feminism, the woman's role in war, the women's role in society, who we're really fighting for, why are we even fighting, and also some just real tit-for-tat kind of sniper go-downs that really uh, happen here. So I think this book is really awesome, and uh, I haven't read enough Garth Ennis myself, so I'm super excited to be exposed more from him. Like you said, it's a Garth Ennis war book. Anybody that reads Ennis knows that there's one thing that he's better at than snarky, satirical, religious comedy. It is his war comics, because he knows how to hit you right in them feels. He knows how to do a war story that finds your feelings balls and kicks them in. And he's damn good at it. He's literally written books that made me feel bad for Nazis. All right. So, <laughs> but this book in particular, it is, it's, it's heartbreaking because you just have this beautiful young soul that is just completely dehumanized. The point that she's almost sociopathic. I mean, she literally thinks about just doing her duty and getting her revenge and the sad thing is is she has a false sense of vengeance that she even knows is false but she has to go after the villain that she's told to shoot instead of the one that she really wants to and oh my god it's pretty damn heartbreaking i do have to say so myself yeah so sarah is definitely our protagonist and you get to learn about her motivations her past and how she ended up in this kind of sniper group but I think the book strikes a really great balance of not only really elevating Sara and her backstory, but also her companions and who else who else is part of this woman sniper gang. And you get a lot of, you know, unique character traits throughout while simultaneously really, you know, elevating her as her story really being the title of the book. And so just to kind of, you know, wind back some of the characters that struck out to me, there's this kind of hardcore woman. I'm really bad with names. Her name was Vera. She's always like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> she reminds me of Fuckface from Deadly Class, right? Didn't she kind of remind you of him? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, she also reminds me of some characters from the book Uber, which is one of my favorite from Avatar Press. Still needs to be finished. Also a World War II book. And we also, I, I do not remember this character's name. Maybe you do, Johnny. But she's kind of the like Russian politics spy. She's not a sniper herself, but always checks in on the women and kind of is very concerned for them because, you know, they're her friends. I think, I think she was called Rina, the the lady that was in charge of them, that was always telling them to wear their gloves and stuff and look good for Mother Russia. Yeah, that one. But she was also assigned to, you know, make sure that they were 100% loyal. And we find out, you know, Sara has a lot of, you know, mixed emotions about what she's fighting for. Like you said, she has a false sense of vengeance. And this character kind of catches even her, like, facial expressions or just any sort of noise she makes. She's like, you know, why did you do that? Did you have doubts? It's my job to kind of, you know, report you back and see if, you know, we need to take you off the front lines and send you to some camp. And, you know, maybe maybe end up in Road of Bones. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's a very terrifying book just to think about that, you know, these are... 
these are young girls. They're like maybe 19, 20. Like Sarah was saying that she just signed up for college when the invasion happened and ended up joining the army directly after. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, at the start of their life and that they were being manufactured into just these killers. I mean, they were told that don't think of that as a person. It's a Nazi. Kill it. Just kill it. She reflects on these things that she was taught like that and you just get these really really great monologues at first you don't understand why she's having such a hard time with it because you're kind of just like along with her like yeah dude it's a nazi just shoot it but then you find out what really happened to her and that is when your heart gets a little broken with her you know what i mean like it's i fully understood her character i absolutely love her character i think she's probably one of the coolest strongest women I've read a comic about, and even though she kind of has these kind of hissy fits and treats her other friends kind of shitty in some parts, I still understand why, because I have small problems that I carry around with me, and it's hard for me to not to lash out sometimes at others about those. I couldn't imagine carrying her baggage and not being able to, you know, let loose. So Yeah, it's some serious baggage, and we kind of get these very serious ethical dilemmas of, you know, from her point of view, of course the right thing is to shoot Nazis. But if you dig a little deeper, you know, you're thinking, like, what are we really fighting for? How come when I want to talk to my teammates on the sniper team, we can only feel comfortable when we're standing alone in the woods? You know, because we know if someone hurt us, they would report us and would be sent back. So, you know, what are we really fighting for? But in, in terms of fulfilling your vengeance or your rage, you know, we're fighting to kill Nazis. We want my scalps. So we get kind of that. And, you know, even within those terms, the main character, Sara, has some sort of, you know, ethical gray areas in terms of her teammates are a little bit upset about what they call her dirty tricks. And it's, you know, we learn that she learned these from her training, but she has some dirty tricks. For example, once you take some Nazi out, you can hide a grenade and short its fuse so it blows up in one second so that once the other Nazis come and, you know, flip them over to see who actually passed away you know this grenade's gonna get triggered and we find you know her team members are you know a little bit unsettled by that because that's crossing their ethics and it's you know it's not crossing hers because like i was told i just have to kill nazis and so it really kind of blends you know like where 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 are the rules of war what, what is morally okay everyone's okay that we got to shoot nazis but we're not okay that we got to lay traps for them and so that's really kind of gets your mind thinking of, you know, the qualms of war and, you know, what are we even fighting for? That relationship between her and I forget her name, the blonde girl, who's kind of she's a should have been a sergeant, but she isn't. But she's kind of like the girl that's in charge of their platoon without being part of the Russian machine completely. And she's basically Sarah's only friend and she's the only person that she confides in. But at the same time, this girl is still 100 percent loyal to the cause. But at the same time, she kind of sees where Sarah's coming from, and it's it's a neat friendship that the two of them have, too, even though they cuss at each other and tell each other to shut up often. But, you know, it, when, you have, when you're a good friend and you have conflicting views, I guess that those are the types of things you say to one another. Yeah, they have a great relationship of the, you know, Sarah's kind of the best sniper, but she's not the leader, so she still has to kind of conform to the, you know, group hierarchy. But on the other hand, the Nazis have been kind of shook you know, by these women snipers and some sort of rumor has been spreading through the German army that there is what they translate to in English from German, uh, the red bitch, who is this kind of master sniper who has over 300 kills. And we find out that none of the women that we've met all together, if you add them all up, none of them have 300 kills. So this rumor is probably, you know, just a derivative of all of them existing as snipers. 
But the rest of the group is like, oh, this rumor must be about Sara, must be about Sara, Sara's the best. So we kind of get this sense of this disconnect between the rest of the women snipers and this kind of sociopathic killer, which is Sara. And I really love this touch where, you know, when they go out each day, they pass the checkpoint full of men. They call them the boys, and they're like, hey, boys. And most of the boys are doing catcalls to all these women snipers. But Sara, they look away. They're like, they're scared the way that they look at her. They take her too seriously. And so we really get a sense of how Sara is able to kind of transcend male-female dynamics, and she's just elevated as some sort of war god in this book with no emotions. Well, that's not entirely true, because at one point, because a lot of the other sniper girls look up to her and almost think that she will protect them and save them, and at one point, specifically the end, that's exactly what she aims to try and do with the stunt she pulls and. I thought that that was a neat thing to do, you know, like actually show that she did care in her own way. Yeah, she definitely cared. What I meant to say was, you know, uh, on the surface, she tries to exhibit no emotion. But ultimately, what we find out in the conclusion is that she's making the ultimate sacrifice. She's going out of her way, breaking rank, uh, breaking order and going out there on her own to try to take out this competitive sniper that the Nazis have sent because they heard these rumors about the uh, red bitch, as they call it. And she realizes the only way to really save my friends, really protect them, is to go at this on my own. And so we see that she is extremely motivated, in the background torn about what she's really fighting for and how she may have been affected by the regime she is supposedly defending. She exhibits no emotion, but ultimately makes a huge sacrifice to try to protect the ones that she cares for. But at the same time, I think she knows what she's doing, because there's the one scene where she goes and talks to the information officer, and the dude's usually a horn dog, and usually whenever girls get something from them he gets something from them and he seemed a little too scared to even ask even after the bad news i think he, normal girls he would still hit up for a little bit but you know he was just like yeah dog i ain't even gonna try and and go after that when she's when she just learned that news <laughs> well it's funny because in the scene before he was like oh yeah you saw the skirt she's wearing i'm definitely she knows what she's got to pay to get this and then his like employees like that's a standard ordered skirt, sir. She's naive. And he's like, no, no, no. She knows. And then once he meets her and delivers this bad news to her, and then doesn't really make any moves, he's like, even I have my limits. I've learned. <laughs> right. And great scene. Like uh, there is a little bit of humor in the book, like right there. But overall, is this is war stories at their most finest. I mean, this is. Reminds me of the movies I watched when I was a kid, like the good old films that actually left you feeling something. And I don't really run across them too often. Usually they're over-glorification stories, but this one, I could see this basically being about maybe any country. Um, and that that's the neat thing about Ennis, is he is the type of guy that'll look for the ins and outs and the weird things about a culture and the time period of it when he does his war stories and shows you just uh, that it was all the gray area. There was really never no black and white. No side was particularly good or bad, especially when you're dealing with the Russians versus the Germans. Because like I was talking about in Road of Bones, I mean, look at what Stalin did to his own people. He did way worse than the Germans did to them. So Well, that's what this book really covers, the gray area. And as we were discussing with Road of Bones, the protagonist is in jail for some benign joke in the Stalin era. And here we learn Sara actually also met Stalin. And while she was at this kind of ceremony, supposedly honoring her for her, you know, great killing effort, she learned some horrifying revelation about the Soviet state and vis-a-vis -vis her past and her family. 
which throws into question her, you know, allegiance to this and throws into question what is she even fighting for. And ultimately, it can just dehumanize the entire thing to say the only way I can execute my vengeance is by killing Nazis. And there's nothing else to think about. And so we just, you know, there are actually a lot of it in this book to unpack in terms of, you know, psychological warfare, ethics, etc. But on the other hand, I also love the tactical nature of this book, how it really gets into the nitty gritty of what being a sniper means in terms of, you know, having cover where you should place yourself and how you can try to, you know, track down a sniper who might even be better than you, which is what we see happen. Yeah, especially the last showdown. I mean, that was really neat, well thought out, both the the tricks and traps that they use. I mean, Garth really pulled out some magic here. It's been a while since I've seen him write anything this good. And wow, yeah, TKO really got hooked up when they got him to write this book for their first launch of books. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, this is an incredible book. And I'll just also add from the art side, while it is killer, it also personally for me reminds me a bit of Sean Phillips in Criminal on a, a little bit, not a one-to-one. But we get kind of this kind of like almost watercolor-esque vibe. So you got this snow, the tundra, uh, a lot of effects flowing, and especially when the guns start blazing and we get explosions and bombs. And they just really paint a really awesome picture in terms of uh, entertainment reader experience of, you know, what being in the war zone is like, especially in such a unique setting. Most wars you think about are in some trenches or on some beach. And this is just like in the middle of the forest with three feet of snow. And I think it's kind of similar with Rota Bone, so it's very fun that we got this, like, two Soviet snowy-filled gore books. Well, the reason why you may have got that feeling is because Elizabeth Brettweiser did the colors for this, and she works very heavily with Brubaker and Phillips. She did Kill or You Be Killed and a couple other things with them, so I think she kind of maybe picked up some of his coloring technique and brought it with her to this because, yeah, it doesn't look like Epting's art from, like, Captain America or some of his more glossier stuff you've seen, like, when he worked for Marvel. So yeah, it's it's a very lovely book. The art is just incredible. And yeah, it's almost savage. I mean, if it wasn't for all the blood and dead Nazis and sniper rifles, I mean, some of the backdrops would look, what's his name? Paint a happy little tree over here, guys. Paintings. Bob Ross. <laughs> but yeah, that was Sarah. And man, what an experience it is. Man, what an experience both these books are. I'm not wrong to tell you to go buy both these books, am I, Nolo? No, you are not. These are not, you know, deep psychological, philosophical books, but they are gut-punching, gore, tundra-based books that are well worth the money. They're super concise, well put together, trades that belong on your shelf. Well, you heard the man. This was Nerds from the Underground. I, of course, am Johnny. You can find me on Twitter at JohnnyAlpha81 and on YouTube at Graphic Vandalism. And I'm Nalo. You can find me on Twitter at uh, comics underscore finance and uh, YouTube TBD. Right on. And you can find the show on Twitter at NerdsFrom. We are a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network, and we'd really appreciate it if you guys would check out some more of the shows on here and give them a listen. But for now, until next time, aloha. Peace out, all.